Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwata podcast where we like to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karimuni to any new listeners to the Afriwata world, we invite you to check out previous Afriwata episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We are headed back to Southern Africa for part two of the Maravi Empire. A shout out again to my Southern Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, a quick note. Please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all of our platforms. And here we post interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. For now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. As we saw in part one of this empire, the Maravi and our African ancestors' cultural identity cannot be boxed into something that is neat, simple, nor linear. And that is the same even today with we, the descendants, right? But apart from just dropping that knowledge casually, this is also my not-so-subtle way of saying, make sure you check out part one. But for seeing as you're already here, stay on and listen to part two, cool? So let's start with, where are we on the continent today? So let's get our maps out to track it. The Maravi established their capital in Mankamba, and that was near the southern part of the Lake Malawi area. This was the base from which the empire then expanded to its height in the 17th century. Its influence stretched across three of the modern-day countries of Zambia, Mozambique, and Malawi. Its physical dominance covered an area similar to this, stretching as it did from across from east to west, covering the northern part of the Zambezi River up to its tributary, the Duangwa River in the northwest, coming down to the Luangwe River and over to the eastern coastline of modern-day Mozambique. So it's quite big. So my people, for those of you at the back who have yet to listen to part one, here is your very, 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 very brief recap rundown of what happened last time. And for those of you who've heard it, well, take five. So the last time, we covered the origin story and where we met the original Kalonga, who's said to have left the Nuba Empire. Check out season one, episode 11, because we covered it at Afriwetu. We then heard how, on his exit, he and his followers settled up upon these lands, and from here his kin went off either by force or fire or amicably, or as Africans say, by force or fire or amicably, to set up their own kingdoms within the empire. 
We shall hear a little bit more about the three of them in particular later on in the show. And two of them, Undi and Lundu, will have their own Afriwetu episodes coming soon. Then we looked at how this massive empire was run, noting that the Kalongo was powerful and who was supported by an influential royal family and council and a central government of sorts. The government was decentralized and the hold he had as Kalongo was attributed to the fact that the Firi clan, from where he usually was from, the royal clan, were pretty much in charge over all the tributary states through the ages. Lastly, we rounded off with religion and amongst other things, we briefly met with a Makewana, who we shall meet again as she played a key part, not only in religion, but also had a part to play in the demise of the empire. But with all that, let's dig right in, right? First stop, society. So the Marathi Empire society was matrilineal and it followed a clan system. This was reflected across from the high echelons of power to all the normal folk. Women held powerful roles socially and it was quite common for husbands to consult their wives on very key decisions. In families, there were two central players, the mother or the mother figure, the Mubumba, as one, and the other was her senior brother, Mwini Mubumba. Women also had politically key and higher ranks. And if you consider that role of the Mwali, the Kolong's most senior wife, she was known to be influential in the royal courts and always came from the Banda clan. Which brings us nicely to clans. Clans played a very major role in society and actually one's lot in life could be determined by where you were placed. So for example, if you're a Firi, then the chances are you've got a bit more favor being as you were part of the royal clan they were also known as highlanders and if you were banda well as we just saw they were also had a claim to nobility outside of the mwani though because they considered and this was strengthened actually by the notion that they were the original inhabitants of the land and in some aspects were actually known as the owners of the land after we to covered a little more about this in part one you should really go and have a listen so out of this very swift look at society, let's head over to the money. So when it came to trade and economy, first of all, let's start with the fact that this empire was loaded, like loved it, my people. It was a big trading civilization with great access due to their location being situated strategically close to the rivers, highlands, and access to the coast. And in this way, they were placed on the crossroads between the interior and the coastline, which meant that traders, travelers, and all manner of people would have to pass through. And the empire's government and subjects took advantage of this access to both the consumer and the sellers and all of the people in between. So let's have a quick look at the economy that supported this trade and the empire as a whole. So the lands themselves were fertile and the rivers and the lakes were full of fish. This lent to it being favorable to have a very strong agricultural community as well as skilled and accomplished fisher folk as well as hunters. And these key groups contributed to the empire's wealth. Then when it came to farming, 
There were the big commercial crops such as cotton, from which they wove and spun a coarse cloth called mashira. They also harvested foods to consume, the main ones being shwere, I'm sure I said that wrong, bulrush, pearl millet, yams, and mapila, which is sorghum. They also had in their basket crops such as sweet potatoes, maize, and manioc. Together with the bounty from the hunters and the fisherfolk, the empire had a stable economy boosted by trade. One of the key trading centers was a capital city. It was a hub of activity in the 16th and 17th centuries, buzzing with trade and commerce. As we have seen, the empire had multiple options to offer in terms of goods, and the ones which were brought in the big bucks actually included other goods such as gold, ivory, and iron. In fact, the people were known to be skilled blacksmiths and knew how to really work the iron ore deposits well. They were known to manufacture quality agricultural tools and products of a material that was then and still is complicated to manage. Fun fact, it is said that the men, the blacksmiths, when preparing or working the iron had to be physically separated from the community and work in a specially set area, which they could not leave to go home from until they were done. So people, they took their craft very seriously. The empire also had other means of wealth, sources of income by trading in fish, beans, tobacco, copper, and salt deposits. Actually, with the last one with salt, they were really big salt producers and traders in the region with their high quality raw material sourced from the lakes Malawi and Chilwa. The main communities who the Maravi engaged with for this trade were the Yao, the Shona kingdoms, and the Swahili brokers. This later included the Europeans, and then the cruel practice of trading indentured Africans superseded all and became the most lucrative, unfortunately. Wealth was generated not just from trade, but also from the collection of taxes and transit fees. So now that we know how wealthy this empire was, let's look at the military's role in the expansion of this territory and then we shall look at the demise. I know, I know, so soon, but... So as we know, the Maravi Empire reached its peak in the 17th century, having expanded and birthed powerful kingdoms in their own right, such as the Undu, Lundu, and the Kafuiti. The expansion happened politically as well as with territory. It gained land mass that stretched from the rivers and the lakes that surrounded and bordered it. It then spanned from the southern parts of Lake Nyasa, now known as Lake Malawi, where the capital Mantimba was situated. It controlled territory to the west from the Luanga River region all the way across to the east towards the coastal region. And then, let's not forget, down from the Zambezi River and across to the Duanga River. So let's have a look at how it got there. So as we know from the origin story, the founder Kalonga died before his son, Kanyenda Mukadzula, and nephew, Kabunduli Firi, came back from the expeditions of conquest in the new territories. On his death, 
it meant that he was instead succeeded by another nephew of the matrilineal line. This didn't go down well. And some of the junior royals, including the two who were on their way back from the expeditions, decided to leave and create their own polities. But kin is kin, family is family, and despite all of this internal fighting, they still kept the kinship ties as they moved further south into modern-day Zambia and Mozambique during the 15th and 16th centuries into what is the Shared Valley. And as a result of this split-not-split split in the royal Furi clan, we see the fragmented and federal style of empire, something that worked as both a strength and a weakness for it. One of the most recognizable strengths is that through this political structure, we find that very solid spheres of influence were created, such as those created by the tributary kingdoms that emerged. So obviously this worked in the empire's favor, as she was then able to dominate territories to the north, east, south and west, with less need for administrative nightmares, and yet still benefit from the collection of taxes and tributes to add to her wealth. Obviously, a key center of influence was Kalonga's own territory that he had direct control over, controlling it from the center. Then we had the three others which were highlighted earlier, when which we'll now look at briefly. These three in particular were considered the most actually influential and more likely to raise a decent bid for the throne, a clear weakness that was exploited in various ways by the many rulers over the years. And actually, it was this, this, this schism, this, this tension that really led in the end to the empire's demise. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, yeah? So, as I said, let's take a quick look at our three before we head to the last section of the demise. So the first kingdom on our list is Undi, which was founded by the nephew to the Kalonga of the same name. He is said to have left either because of being commissioned to conquer new lands or because he fell out with the Kalonga and decided to chart his own path. Either way, he went west and established a formidable kingdom that was headquartered at Mano on the Kapoche riverbanks, which is northern Mozambique, effectively expanding the empire to the west. Then we have Kafuiti, another of Kalonga's kinsmen. He plays a pivotal role in the fortunes of his own nephew, Lundu, who we shall meet again in a bit. Kafuiti left under very tense circumstances. Basically, a lot of conflict. And this was caused by these internal fiery succession disputes. As a result of one of them, he and his people were forced out of Anthimbo. And this is how it happened. So their enemies had started the Whispering Campaign, which ended up with them being accused of sorcery of all things. The sorcery which had caused the misfortunes and the plagues that had fallen on the people. So the practice of evil magic was a serious criminal offense with dire consequences if found guilty. So these accusations were not to be taken lightly at all. Thus, Kafuiti had no choice but to leave with his followers and family in tow. They headed southwards and settled around the Chipata in the Mwanza Valley. And that it is within this group of Kafuiti that we find our next kinsman and a significant person in the empire's expansion and demise, Kafuiti's own nephew, Lundu. 
So, Nolan's story of Brule starts with his own exit, as I said, from Kafriti to chart his own path. He headed out around 1560 and on his way landed near Chikwana in Mwenyewami Tengu. He established his base there and then from here he expanded to the Makua and Lolo regions, heading east. So using his military might, he was able to conquer territory that stretched for the, from the Zambezi along the northwest and right up almost to the eastern coastline of the continent. The Longo was very successful in his conquest and in time he grew mightier than the kingdom of the Kafuiti and it too came under his control. The kingdom became a force to be reckoned with in the empire, a fact that did not escape the reigning Kalonga. He was very aware that his biggest potential challenger was Nalundu. Many saw him as second in power only to Palonga, and this was certainly true if you consider that Nalundu's power, influence and wealth. To be honest, the Kalonga would have had every right to be cautious. As you can also imagine, this made for a very precarious relationship between the two, which sometimes went from cold to hot, as was seen in the 1620s and 30s. And a fun fact, and actually it's a fun fact and a clarification. If it got a bit lost with the naming, here's the thing. Very much like the Kalonga, the label Onde, Rondo, and Kafuiti were initially the names of the royals who set out, the founders of the kingdoms. They then went a step further and once they had established their kingdoms, their names became the titles held by the rulers synonymous, which meant king and a dynastic title. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the kingdoms were also eponymous. Basically, they were named after the founders. So I hope I've just, you know, muddied it even further. So basically, Undu was the name of the king, the name of the founder, as well as the name of the kingdom. Are we together? All right. So now we come to the demise. The decline of the empire seemed to have started around the 18th century and there were a number of things that caused the ultimate demise of this empire. For this episode, we shall look at what I found most interesting and here at Afri, where too, as usual, we would love it if our fam who are the descendants from the empire could share their thoughts with us and then we will share it with the Afriwatu. Okay, so just to kick us off, I shall tell you the list I have and then we shall look at each one in turn. Cool? First up, what was a prevalent issue, that of succession tensions within the royal Fury clans, which led to the formation of the offshoot kingdoms. This in turn leads to the second issue, that of rebellion within the tributary kingdoms, and that in time started agitating for independence. And the third problem, which I promise you was closely related, and I'll explain why in a bit, was the conqueror peoples of the Ngoni and the Yao. So let's start with the succession issues. So we heard how this was initially resolved by having those who are unhappy, leaving willingly or not, who then ended up forming their own kingdoms within the empire. The 
actions helped to expand its reach as they still remain subordinate to the Kalonga. These strong bonds of the Maravi states were based on kinship and dynasties. And this worked for a season. In fact, it worked for a very long season, for centuries really, so it's important not to underestimate the system. But when it didn't work, well, we know that succession issues can be seized upon as a weak moment in any government, right? The empire was no different. There were many a time when in the chaos and confusion that came with these types of internal disputes, nobles were known to plot the overthrow of the Kalonga. And although the Kalonga of the day always managed to maintain his status, after a while, the cracks were too big and the empire as a whole started to feel the effects. And even when we go back to the exits, let's quickly also note that on Undi's departure, for the longest time, the Kalonga had to rely on the Undi kingdom as a place from which the royal fury heirs and future Kalongas would hail from. So what happened is that the original Undi's followers and kin only just happened to be a majority from the Fury clan, effectively those who were the royal lineage. So the nobility who remained in the capital were mostly from the Banda clan, who had their own level of influence and power, especially when it came to their roles in advising the Kalonga. But this vacuum of royal clanspeople and reliance on the Undi, who had significant hold of the center as a result, was a problem. Now combine that with the Lundu kingdom, which had grown to a powerhouse in its own steam, its wealth and influence made it a serious threat to the Kalunga's power in the Maravi Empire. So both these kingdoms in their own way just chipped away at the empire's overall power. Saying that, and this goes nicely into the second issue mentioned around rebellion. Let's not forget that they were still part of the empire. So even with all of this, they were still part of the empire. And yet they too did not escape and found that their own authority was being challenged. And in time, they also had to face these own battles with their subordinate chieftains, asserting their own independence, which, as again I said, because they're part of the empire, had an impact on the overall empire. In fact, one of the significant rebellions was found in and Sinja. Now, at the very start of this episode, remember the mention of Makewana? We met her in part one, and I did say we'd catch up with her again, so here we are. Makewana, outside of being a powerful and influential woman in her religious capacity, also held her own as a chiefess. The Kalongas relied heavily on her blessings and leveraged on his relationship with her to validate his spiritual dominance. And this was a mutually beneficial arrangement, like don't be fooled. But in time, her reliance on him was not as much as she then started to begin the, to resist the calls to use her ritualistic powers to serve at the dynasty of the Firi rulers. She could actually flex her own political influence and look to build on it and not to just be a tool for the Kalonga and indeed the Undi. She had started to establish trading relations and was making her own money and wealth. This parting of ways, though, with the Kalonga was also accelerated somewhat by an absolutely horrible incident which rocked the relationship to its core. So what happened? 
it was reported that the Kalonga had behaved in a manner and committed an act that was truly repulsive. So, Makewana had to travel out of the lands of Msinja where there was a serious drought. As she was the rainmaker, she had gone with her entourage to collect water from the lake, which would then be used as part of a ritual rain dance, the Wetsa. Her companions on this pilgrimage of sorts were the Amatsano, who were her virgin acolytes. And tragically, it is one of these Amatsano who was then defiled by the Kalonga. Worth noting that in other versions, it's said to have been a member of his party, but he still did nothing about it. And that, therefore, it was his responsibility. As a result of this violation, Makewana, who's rightfully incensed, as we would all be, did what anybody else in her position would do. Avenge this violation of a woman. Keeping in mind that this is a society that is matrilineal and this was one of her personal acolytes. She was supported in her military attack on the Kalonga by other rulers in the region, including the Undi. So, we've seen what's happened internally. Now, let's move and look externally. Of course, all of these internal issues did mean for a weaker state, right? And you really, as a state, cannot afford to be weak in the face of these two forces came with fire and conquest in mind. And here I'm speaking of the Yao and the Ngoni. The Ngoni were highly skilled warriors. And as you Afri want to know from previous episodes on Southern Africa, especially that of the Zulu and the Ndebele, seasons two, episodes eight and nine, and season three, episode seven, respectively, I mean, quite frankly, woe unto you if you're in their way. And well, this empire was in the way. For the Ngoni, by the late 1800s, about 1875, they had had control over a good portion of the region, leveraging on their own solid system of governance and practice of incorporating those whom they had conquered into their way of life and their military. So therefore, they're just growing and growing and growing. This resulted in a military and a force that was one of the biggest and baddest moving as a well-organized body and behemoth southwards. They were a force and for a time, an unstoppable force. The Yao were the dominant traders in the coastal region, spanning all across the eastern coast of Africa. For the Yao, it was majorly through the trade of indentured humours, which meant the decimation of villages, chiefdoms, communities, and this was made easier as they took advantage of the disunity within the empire. All that internal fighting. So you can see how it all links together. And this is what I was referring to at the start of this section. The Yao had actually previously switched from the lucrative ivory trade to that of humans, which was extremely profitable trading as they did with the Europeans, the Portuguese, and the Arabs. And then, Afriwatu, and then, just to add a salt mine to the multiple wounds caused by the Yao, there was the case of the Mangochi, the Yao chief Nenula, who killed the last of the Kangolas and his Mali in the 1870s. The empire was dismantled. 
and by 1891 its demise following what was akin to many, many, many small ant bites on an elephant was complete. And as we close in the empire here at Afriwet, let's take a quick look at what else is happening in the world before we sign off. So in 1610, King Henry of France is assassinated by Francois. Between 1772 and 1795, the partitions of Poland end and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and erase, hear this, erase Poland from the map for 123 years. In Mexico, the Mexican War of Independence was a decade-long conflict that ended in Mexican independence in 1821, Nuevo Mexico. In 1838, 46,000 original Americans, what people call Native Americans, have been forcibly relocated in the Trail of Tears. In 1857, Indian mutiny against Britain. And in 1852, Frederick Douglass delivers his speech, The Meaning of July 4th for the Negro, in Rochester, New York. So as we bring it home, what a journey this has been, Afriwatu. I mean, from part one, this empire has had so much to pack in, especially being one of the more significant ones in the Southern African region. I feel like we should do another series on our ancestors from the Maravi. There will be more covering them through the Ondi and the Lundu. So please keep it here. I do have to say, as I said last time, almost everything I've researched on this empire was brand spanking new information for me. And it was so exciting as going through the hard moments of how dope these ancestors, who are the true essence of Afriwetu, were. And then also, 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 people also, African women... Rock. I just thought it's worth mentioning that every so often. And you know the Maravi were matrilineal, so I thought this is a good place to state it anyway. And I say this because I am one, and so often our influence and our power in the global space is overlooked and grossly underestimated. And yet, interestingly, mimicked by all because they culturally appropriate our thoughts, ways, methods, and genius. Yep. Genius, right? We're back to it. Studying the Maravi Empire really brought home that African cultural identity is very layered, just like our history. And this empire is another great example of this with both the concepts of identity and history shouting out loud. So please make sure that on this one and your own ancestors, go and do your own deeper research. And until next time, very cute. Sink, we are it.
Kiro Iendi kasu Wakumunda kusaka mbewa Beba Abobanzake Watabindi kira mapunziro Iendi keni Wakudimba kufesa foja Madula songa 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 Zipana panji zipanzo Opanda songa Madula songa 